Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. As always, I'm your host, Josh Nichols. And on today's episode, it is a very special one, at least to me. It should be special to everyone. uh, And you'll find out why once you hear him talking. We've got Jared Tendler as a guest on the podcast. Uh, He is the author of The Mental Game of Poker. Uh, I think The Mental Game of Poker 2, I believe it's what it's called, and now a recent book called The Mental Game of Trading. And you might wonder, why in the heck do I have a poker and like stock market guy on The Mental Golf Show? Well, you'll find out, but just as an introduction, uh, you'll hear us talking about Robert. Um, Robert Linville is my now mentor and was my instructor uh, back when I was pursuing playing professional golf. And Robert, I guess, listened to the audiobook, uh, Mental Game of Poker, and suggested I listen to it or read it. And I also listened to the audiobook, and it probably uh, transformed, might be a stretch, but it gave a new perspective, a, a massive shift in perspective into what I see and what I've learned about, like, the variance in golf and dealing with variables and uh, injecting logic into emotional situations. It's just, I mean, if you haven't read Mental Game of Poker, it, it probably seems weird as a recommendation coming from me, a golf guy from, on the Mental Golf Show, but do it. Read the Mental Game of Poker, and I'm assuming Mental Game of Trading, he, he makes a good case for why it expounds on the good parts of mental game of poker and you can learn even more so don't turn this off just because this is uh, a guy that's written about poker and stock trading and um don't turn it off because of that because he has a golf background that you'll hear in just a sec and it's just universally the the principles that he talks about are universally applicable so i know you'll learn something from this one if you have you, half of an ear, you'll learn something. So I hope you enjoy this. Head over to the Facebook group, the Mental Golf Show Facebook group, and drop a line of what you learned from this episode. And if you haven't joined yet, do it. There's such a good uh, community going on over there. Um, I just love the feedback and the and the back and forth conversation. It's just been so awesome. So head over there. And now into today's episode with our guest, Jared Tindler. Cool. So how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Good. Good. I am good. Yeah. Yeah. You too. Uh, Obviously, I feel like I've met you before because of how much I've thought about your work and tested it with myself and with my players I work with. But awesome. um, Yeah. yeah. So nice to finally meet you, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I mean, I haven't done a ton in the golf world, so it's fun to just get to talk about it and, you know, it's cool that you're applying it. So I'd be happy to hear some of those stories and stuff. So yeah, it's all, it's all good. Yeah. So I, I've read mental game of poker and from Robert. Be- yeah. Yeah. Robert recommended it to me. Yeah. Um, and I've evangelized as much as I possibly can about it because it, it truly as, as weird as it is, I mean, maybe it's because of your background in golf and I'd like you to talk about that is yeah. how much it just easily applies to golf. So, Maybe 
you know, I have the context of the book. So maybe the people that haven't read it and if you're listening or watching, you need to read Mental Game of Poker and now your new book, uh, Mental Game of Trading. Um, what just just give a background of, I guess, your golf background and maybe your macro background. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so I, I started playing golf, I'd say seriously, uh, freshman year of high school. Um, you know, in, in my area, uh, baseball, tennis and golf were all spring sports. So I was actually ranked in Connecticut as a junior tennis player, um, you know, but I was 4'11 as a freshman in high school, um, you know, and was a decent baseball player. But again, you know, going from, you know, minor league or, uh, you know, the little league field to a big field did not transition well. So I kind of looked at I, and, and, and I'd say, you know, as a kid, I always wanted to be a like great at sports. I wanted to play professionally, um, you know, so just kind of doing my calculus there, golf seemed like the, the right angle to go. And I got good very quickly. Right. So I went from a 26 to a 13 one year that, you know, next year went to a 13 to an eight to a four. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of peaked a little bit late, so I didn't get any D one scholarship offers, but, um, got re recruited to play Div division three Skidmore college in upstate New York. Um, you know, and got to play four national championships. We traveled, you know, uh, six to eight times a year to play big tournaments, uh, went to play out at Stanford. Um, you know, one, one year, uh, we finished dead last by 26 shots, but listen, I, you know, second round, I beat Joel Kreibel, you know, tied, uh, um, Matt Kuchar, you know, shot, shot, shot even par. It was pretty cool. Anyway. So, you know, I got, got pretty good, pretty quick. Um, but my, my kind of foray into sports psychology started, uh, 97, tried to qualify for the U S open went down to a course in Massachusetts had never seen and played like the best golf of my life. TD green hit 16 greens for the 13 fairways uh, and, and basically missed the playoff by a shot, but I missed uh, four putts inside three feet that I know it was all, all nerves and, and, you know, putting was always kind of my weak point. Um, so, you know, I, I, I did not do like the AJG AJGA tour. Um, I did a lot of local stuff. So, you know, my competitive experience was not that high at that point, but, you know, I still won two tournaments my freshman year of college. Um, so it wasn't like I wasn't able to handle, you know, pressure. It, there was just something kind of unique about qualifying for the U.S. Open that really kind of exposed it. Um, so that was kind of my entry. Uh, went back home, you know, to my club. And, you know, uh, one of the guys there just kind of handed me Rotella's golf is not a game of perfect. And, you know, that kind of just started my, my, my wormhole. And my game continued to elevate, you know, year over year. Sophomore year, won another two tournaments. Um and, and, you know, I think, yeah, that summer was actually, yeah, finished 15th at nationals was, a, was a, an all American. Um, and then subsequently a couple more years, I, I won a total of nine tournaments in college, three time all American. Um, so I was, again, I was competing and playing at a high level, but whenever I was playing in, you know, USAM qualifiers, US public amp qualifiers, th that sort of stuff, I just was not able to kind of get over the hurdle. Um, so I kind of made the decision at that point. Uh, I think it was my middle of my junior year. It was like, I just couldn't see myself just trying it. I think I'd gotten a lot of feedback that just said, Hey, just give it a shot and see what happens. Uh, but that's just not my style. So I, I decided to go and get a, a second major in psychology. Subsequently went to um, get a master's degree in counseling psychology, spent two years after that getting licensed as a therapist, 3,200 hours of supervised practice with, with zero intent to practice as a therapist. But I wanted to combine sports psychology with therapy not to combine like this, you know, uh, more personal approach to, to golf or golf psychology, but to just dig below the surface, right? Like I wasn't confident. I was fearful in these spots. I was buckling under the pressure. 
And, and the, the sports psychology from Rotella and others to me was all about kind of containment, you know, developing some skills, but emotions are just powerful. And if you don't kind of get at the root of them and, and solve them, then you're going to continually underperform. So um, after I got my license, um, I quit my job, uh, moved out to Arizona and started my golf practice, you know, kind of did the cold calling for a while and was able to find a home at Moon Valley Country Club, uh, which was kind of a pretty decent sized hub in, in, you know, the Scottsdale Phoenix area for professional players. It used to be owned by Ping um, and, you know, was able to kind of get hooked up with a, with a, uh, an instructor who, you know, was kind of looking for this, uh, you know, uh, instruction, uh, physical, you know, training and, and golf psychology kind of all in one. And it was still kind of on the earlier side of this TPI was not around yet at this point, you know, there's still a lot of, a lot kind of uh, patchwork at that point for even the tour players. So there was kind of a unique model, but you know, I was young, so it was hard to break into some of the, the, the bigger tour, uh, tour pros. Frankly, I wasn't as good than either. My, my, my value proposition was not well honed yet. Um, and it was tough to, to get, you know, amateur golfers, even some, some tournament players to really do the work needed to actually get better at this. I think, you know, my ethic was, all right, well, if golf is a mental game, then, you know, let's, let's prove it right. There should be a sports psychologist at every golf course, if it's that important, you know, and, and at the end of the day, I, I felt like golfers were just not willing to work as hard as they needed to on this side of the game. They wanted things easily. So, you know, I, I ended up getting kind of a, you know, an introduction to poker from a former uh, tour player um, who had, had kind of retired and, and moved into that space. So, yeah, that's kind of the, the quick, quick runaround, although not that quick. But. Yeah. I mean, that it's hard to boil up, boil down your entire pre poker and now trading writing career all into one little thing. Uh, but that's, that's extremely interesting. You got good as a player, but you, you didn't get, you still couldn't perform at the level you wanted to when you wanted to. So you took that as a kind of a personal vendetta against golf and said, what can I do and try to learn? So I, I couldn't remember from the book or, and if you said it just now, I don't remember or I missed it, but if, did you ever get to a point where you like no zero nerves in a U.S. open qualifier, USAM qualifier putting didn't matter. Like, did you ever get to that point? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, in my, my graduate degree program days and, you know, subsequently I, I kind of got to the root of a lot of what were right. my confidence issues. Um, and, and so, you know, I didn't, uh, I have, I have tried qualifying for the U S open multiple times now. I mean, it's not about not having nerves, right. It's just the degree of them. How excessive are they? Right. You know, the reason I've, I've kind of underperformed there now is just, I'm playing, not exaggerating, you know, 15 to 20, like, like actual rounds a year. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, in 2013, um, I did, I did make it through a uh, U.S. mid M qualifier. Um, I shot two under par and, and I'm not exaggerating. That was literally my, my 15th round that year mm -hmm. was that qualifier. So, you know, from the time that I was in my graduate program, um, you know, thereafter, I was not playing a ton, but I had really had learned how to play really well with what I had and just, you know, kind of show up and, and play. The other thing is that when I was down in Arizona and working with that instructor, eventually I started, you know, working on my swing and both putting and my technique really kind of elevated. And so that was a, that was a big part of it. My, my putting was weak. I mean, there was a lot of technical flaws in it. So yeah, the pressure is going to expose those technical weaknesses, but 
I did play some mini tour events and, and what kind of got me motivated to do that was, was a, a four day stretch where I shot 63, 65, 69. I say four day stretch cause it was, you know, over four days. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was in the zone a lot. I mean, it was, you know, truly kind of a, a breakthrough moment in my mind because it was, they weren't, these were not casual rounds. I was playing in, you know, fairly decent sized money matches with guys that I didn't know very well. Right. So there was pressure in there, especially to kind of prove myself on two levels, right. Both as a player, but also, you know, here I am trying to sell these services to, you know, them or that, or people that they may talk to. So, you know, for me, I felt like that was a, a tournament in and of itself, not as big as a U.S. open qualifier, but you know, it's not for the last um, I'd say four out of the last seven years, I've tried qualifying for the open again. Uh, and I, I'm like, I'm two shots. Am I, you know, I've realized that my technique right now, you know, will get me to shoot, you know, 73, 74. And I just cannot get better than that. And that's just kind of where it is. And my, my mentality could not be stronger. Uh, I'm getting the most out of my game. Um, and that's just kind of all I have. So, you know, when I've got more time to actually work on my swing and, and everything else, then maybe I'll break through again. Yeah. And I think that's a, there, there's a lesson buried in that is, if you can get your mental game good and your confidence level and your acceptance and your strategy, those things, that's, that's how to get the most out of your current physical skill. Right. And a lot of players don't, don't understand that. They think, uh, I mean, I guess in a way getting your mental game better will help you play better, but it's really, it just, it just allows your physical game to come out better. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, so, there's a reason, yeah. there's a reason why the Dalai Lama is not a good player. <laughs> I guess he doesn't practice. Yeah. He doesn't play. I mean, you know, it's like if, you know, I mean the, the Bobby Jones quote is I think like the most misquoted mm. golf quote of all time. I mean, it's not, not only repeated frequently, but it's just dead wrong. Golf is not 90% mental. Mm. Okay. Competitive golf mm. is 90% mental. That that's where you know, edges are, are extrapolated because by and large, the physical capacity is pretty damn near equal or at least really close. Right. And so, you know, what, what, what was Tiger's edge in the game? Right. Yes. He had great physicality, but like if you took the top 50 players in the world and, and every single one of them was playing their absolute best, the, the edges are not that big. Right. And, and if we kind of extrapolate out like over a larger, not just a single tournament, but let's say over a stretch of you know, seven or eight tournaments where the luck factor is going to kind of start to even out, right? Tiger's not winning every tournament. He's, yeah, he's going to be, you know, near the top, but again, the, the edge is not that big. Tiger's big advantage during that, that stretch where he wasn't, he didn't miss a cut for what, seven years um, was because, you know, at, at the back end, right? Him at his worst was, I mean, I'll just estimate two to three shots better than the second ranked player in the world at that point, whether it was Mickelson or anything else, whoever. So, he was making cuts in spots where he didn't deserve to just because of his own ability to kind of will it. So that's where the mental game I think is, is the biggest advantage. Yes. On the front end, we can say, okay, yeah, if you're getting in the zone, you're obviously going to make the most of of every physical skill that you have and be able to adapt to certain shots and, you know, read the wind or or lies better. But, but really it comes down to how well you're not beating yourself. And that back end component is I think massive. Okay. And the way you talk about front end and back end, reminds me of the inchworm model and the bell curve. Yep. Is that, I mean, is that basically what you're referring to front end and back end? Yeah, essentially. A yeah, game, I think, C game. You know, yeah. I mean, you could look at it just as like, you know, you at your best, you at your worst, um, you know, and we could, we could kind of run uh, an analysis across every dimension of your game 
or we could just kind of put it all together and say, all right, um, that's where it is. And so, for, yeah, for people who don't know that concept, basically the idea is uh, if you're not familiar with an inchworm, it's like an actual caterpillar that's about an inch inch long. Um, it moves, you know, differently than like other caterpillars or worms. And if you can kind of picture a caterpillar crawling along the ground, this one's kind of kind of got a hump in the middle where there's no feet. So it kind of like lifts up on the front end and then stretches its body, its body straight, does this kind of accordion slinky action to bring the legs or two ends closer together and then anchors the back and then stretches forward again. And to me that the, the, the inchworm is basically a, a walking bell curve, right? A bell curve being, you know, a sample of your performance, right? So think about the quality of your decision-making, think about the quality of your shot making, uh, you know, across a large enough sample, you're going to see a, a smaller sample of your best, smaller sample of your worst. And then the middle is going to be the average. And I think what a lot of players don't realize is that their best and their worst is linked, right? And so when we think about the most common thing that I typically hear from golfers is, oh, that's so unlike me. Well, if it happened, it is like you. It's not, it doesn't define you, but it's within your range. And so, yeah, I mean, one of my biggest frustrations with golfers in general is that, you know, they're just by default more overconfident. And so they, they're, they're very quick to just delete their bad shots. Right. And, and look, I mean, the way that golf is structured, it does kind of help to encourage that the handicap system dumps your 10 worst scores, right? You can take a mulligan, you know, a lot of times you're playing matches with players and, you know, you can pick up and, you know, so the consequences of your poor shots really, you know, sometimes can get deleted. And, you know, my dad, you know, is, is just like an expert of the one, you know, after a round who can turn an 87 into an 80 in four minutes, you know, how, oh, you know, if I didn't dump that one in the bunker, or I've, or, you know, I'm easily getting up and down. It's like all of a sudden, you know, you're just deleting shots. And, and if you're not fully understanding why those shots are being lost, why those mistakes are being made, then you can't move that back end forward. And that gap between your best and your worst stays really wide. And the consequences of that are that you're going to be really inconsistent. It's going to be hard for you to play well consistently under pressure because you're burning so much energy mentally to maintain that peak level of performance because that range is so wide. Um, you know, you see it all the time on tour. Players rely on getting hot. I, I, that pisses me off to no end because it's so weak to rely on that. You're, you're basically saying, okay, I'm really not in control of how well I can play. I'm waiting for things to kind of click. I'm waiting for me to kind of find it. And then I'm going to play well. Uh, there's not a lot of control there. Um, so you're just sort of waiting around, hoping and waiting until that happens. And so, yeah, if you systematically and aggressively work on your worst, work on that back end and move it forward, then you create the conditions both for your consistency to level up, but also for the front end to get better. You know, a lot of times players plateau and their learning stops. They don't know how to get better because that trailing edge is too weak. Right. So if to, to take that to rubber meets the road, a player says, yeah, I, I could shoot anywhere from 88 to 73. And that's, that's probably like my current range, like real fringe range, uh, maybe lower on the 73. But if, if I said that's my range, I don't, I don't mind the 73, obviously that's great. But how do I keep from shooting the mid eighties, high eighties? Like what, obviously it's like, okay, let's look at all of your game across your, your driving, your irons, your wedges, whatever. But how would you start picking apart their game to let's draw in the rear of the inchworm? Yeah. I mean, if, the first thing you're going to do is like, look at where you're bleeding 
those shots the most, right? So yeah, if it is tee shots, if it is iron play, if it's a mix of the of, of all of them and there's not really a clear pattern, then we're going to still look and say, okay, well, what's the mental pattern that's going on, right? So some players, they just, they kind of fall apart after one missed shot, right? And that, that kind of begins the engine of sort of self-criticism and then overthinking and then more aggressive decision-making and then four shots. And like, so the snowball can kind of go that way, you know, but, but at the end of the day, what we're looking for is what are the reasons why your performance drops off so much, right? Like, you know, it's not the, the most sexy thing to want to do, but when you find yourself struggling, the number one thing to do is to suck less, right? Find a way to shoot 82 on the day where you shoot 87. So often we just kind of give up, mm. right? You give up that extra little focus to dig out, you know, that extra, um, you know, focus on a, on a five footer, you know, you kind of just go up there a little, little too, uh, you know, autopiloty. same thing with the chip or the same thing with the drive, you know, if you understand the patterning that exists within your mistakes and you start to look at, you know, how, what, what, how has my mentality changed? How have my emotion, how has my emotional state changed? That becomes kind of the access point for you to begin kind of digging in and figuring out what actually is flawed beneath the surface. Okay. The, 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 this is a really, really important distinction. When you have negative thoughts over a particular shot, when you feel emotion over a particular shot, like anger or a loss of confidence or even overconfidence, those are signals of an underlying flaw, right? And this is kind of what, you know, my program has kind of developed into over time is I kind of took sports psychology with therapy. It's like, there are these layers of performance flaws, like an illusion of control, like the hindsight bias, right? Which is what happens after rounds, um, you know, being overly self-critical. Um, a hatred of mistakes, you know, these kinds of flaws are what produce the emotional reactions. They are what produce those negative thoughts. I can't tell you the number of times I've hit fantastic golf shots with a string of negative, negative thoughts rolling through my head. And the reason they don't affect me is because I know that they're not consequential unless I actually engage in them, right? They're no different than a distraction, like me focusing on my feet during my shot. Like, that, that's not where my focus needs to be. It needs to be on the target. So as long as I can, you know, not just ignore those, those thoughts, they do not have an impact. I've hit putts in a, in a qualifier where my hands were literally shaking and it didn't affect the putt because I knew it wasn't consequential. Hmm. So we're sort of changing the, the way that you're evaluating your thoughts and your emotions by saying they are signals of deeper flaws, your mistakes that you make, the reason that that back end exists, Okay. They happen for predictable reasons. You look more closely at what the emotions and the thoughts are, are kind of showing and you dig in to find the flaws. And that becomes the thing that you correct. And over time, right. You're going to start to create a, 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 a strategy that will be able to move you forward. I love that. That's everyone needs to rewind now and listen to that again, a few times. That, that's excellent. Um, so I only have you for a a chunk of time, but I want to get into some questions that people asked. Um, that there's, there's some, I got five or six here that maybe we can get through, um, a few from Robert. I really, uh, Robert Linville, I gave him the priority first priority. What do you have well for, deserved. Well deserved. for Jared? Yes, it is. So <laughs> he said, uh, trust. I've been thinking a lot about trust. A player has to trust the coaches on their team, but more importantly, a player has to learn to trust his or her ability. Ultimately, isn't that the purpose of training? So how does a player learn to trust his or her own ability? Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would kind of reframe the word to confidence, um, and then, right? Confidence is sort of. I mean, we, we need a, we need a good definition of it. Confidence is just perception, perception of your own skill. So when I, as a player, have confidence in my coaches that they can help me, then the trust is sort of implicit. So if a player is not trusting you as a coach, I think it's kind of up to you to figure out what is blocking them. Maybe it's not about the relationship. Maybe it's more about the player. Them kind of like giving up control, you know, and having somebody else kind of take the reins in a sense at certain times for the future of your game. Um, if it's, you know, the player that's blocking in the, you know, what, what might kind of exist, you know, in terms of, of things that are going to undermine their own perception of their skill, why are they, you know, why is their perception off? You know, have they been overly critical of their mistakes of poor shots? You know, I think you've probably heard of the, you know, the phrase like, you know, great golfers, are the ones that have short memories, right? They, they, but I, I think what, we're, what, what, the, what that's really kind of implying is that, you know, if you place too high of a burden or too high of expectations or too high of some kind of negative thoughts or emotions around, you know, some of your poor shots, they just actually stand out more in your mind. And you create this sort of imbalance where your good shots have happened at a higher frequency, but the emotional weight of them is actually lower than the handful of poor shots. And so, you know, a lack of trust can kind of develop as a result of that, which is again, really a lack of confidence in your game because your perception is just a kind of out of balance. Yeah, I that reminds me of something Rotella said where he said it's important that we as negatively biased people, humans, let alone golfers, need to flag the good shots in our minds to say, like, remember that one because that's important. And normally we get more emotional about bad shots and and more even keeled on good ones. And in a way it needs to be, I guess his argument is it needs to be flipped. Like let's, let's tag the good ones with emotions and be even keeled on the bad ones. Um, I mean, it's, is that, is that kind of what you're referring to? I, I, I am. Yes. But I think we're, so like, it's, it's nice in theory and yeah, for some okay. players it will work. Like if you don't have a, a problem with high expectations, which I know a lot of players do, right? Then that pro then that strategy will work. And then it's just a question of, oh, okay, I need to train my mind to place greater emphasis on the good shots. And for some players, you know, that typically will work. My estimation is, you know, between 10 or 15%. Mm. Now I'm not saying that high expectations are the only problem here, but if you have high expectations of yourself, by definition, your measuring stick is skewed. So now what, you, what is technically a good shot verifiably and, you know, us as coaches might say like, yeah, okay, that was above average. It's not above average to you internally because your expectations are so high. So you get zero points mm -hmm. for that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then what ends up happening is all the negative shots, all the poor shots have, have higher degrees of negativity. So it's, it's a nice strategy in theory, but, but you know, what, what I, what I typically recommend with, with my clients or with, with players is like, if you try something actively for two weeks and you see no progress, it means that the problem is more complicated than you thought, which means a strategy like that is just not going to stick, not because of your own failing. It's not because you're not trying hard enough. It's because there's a hidden factor at play. And, you know, in this case, like high expectations are a very, very common one, you know, in that spot. For sure. Okay. That's, that's excellent stuff on confidence and trust. Um, so next question, how can a person practice mental training? How do you know if you are improving your mental game, this is something Robert and I have talked about for a long time is 
it's easy to track physical improvement, you know, shots, dispersion is smaller, scores are lower, what, you're making more putts, there's real stats. So how can you apply that knowledge that you're improving metric to the mental game? Do you have any ways to do that? Yeah, so this is, a, this is something I talk about in the second poker book and, and the trading book. Um, it's a tool called an A to C game analysis. And you can go to my website, jaredtendler.com, go to worksheets, and there's a downloadable one. Um, right now it's designed for traders, but you can fill out the, the details for yourself. The basic premise is that what you do is you articulate very clearly what the differences are between your A game, your B game, your C game, both from a technical standpoint. Um, you could do it across all dimensions of your game. You know, some of the PGA Tour and, 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 and Corn Ferry players that I work with, we've all done this on multiple levels of their game. But then, of course, you know, from a mental standpoint, you are defining it mentally, right? So here, is, here are the, the ways that I would describe my mentality when I'm in my C game, right? And so it might be, you know, describing some instances of, of uh, you know, kind of auto, autopilot, um, you know, uh, some boredom, you know, is sometimes, you know, some overconfidence, mm -hmm. whatever those dimensions are in very, very clear terms. And then you do the same thing with your B game and your A game. And so number one, we could start to look at, okay, how frequently am I performing at that, you know, in that space? And you could do that shot to shot, right? You could, you could rank every single shot you, you hit, you know, as A, B or C. And so then we get some statistics on that. And then you can kind of measure those statistics and also look at them, you know, in different environments, right? So you could do it in, in a practice round or just a casual round. You could do it in a tournament round. Um, you could do it, you know, in, in high pressure tournament rounds um, and just sort of see, you know, a, I mean, of course you need to get a baseline and then B it's, it's how, how frequently, um, you know, are they then occurring kind of after doing that mental work? So that, that's like one way to do it. Um, I think if you don't do some kind of objective, you know, kind of analysis or criteria where you are externalizing very clearly, here's where my mental game is now, it becomes very difficult to have a measuring, uh, like a point of reference in the future. Cause the problem is emotions tend to feel the same. Okay. The goal in my mind is not to feel numb or neutral. I think it's one of the biggest problems with junior golf over the last decade has been this ethic that you should be removing all of your emotion from the golf, from, from playing and not experience or even uh, express any of it. And I, I think what ends up happening is you, you suck the life out of the game and you know, a lot of kids just leave because like, what are they playing for now? So the goal is not to remove emotion. It's to remove the excessive emotional volatility that causes you to hit poor shots. Right. Yeah. And that can happen because you made three birdies in a row, just as much as it can happen because you hit one OB. Right. So it's not um, excessive negative emotion, right. Feeling too good, you know, can certainly be a problem too. Mm. So th the thing is emotion over time becomes a, like, a, is, is like a different, different, difficult metric to use because you often will feel just as angry as you did six months ago. But when we look more closely and we say, oh, okay, well, how was the quality of your thinking then? Yeah actually was quite a lot different. Oh, how was the quality of your decision-making? Well, yeah, I mean, I wasn't overly aggressive. I was pissed off. I, you know, I, I, you know, banged the club in the ground, you know, threw it over my bag. Um, but I forgot about it within 10 seconds. So your recovery was a lot faster, right? So before, you know, getting really pissed off might've cost me four or five holes. Now I can recover with one, within one or two shots, right? So the, the, the length of time for recovery is a, is an important metric, but the actual feeling of emotion doesn't change. And that's a, that's a really important thing because with a lot of my clients, like, yeah, it becomes very difficult for them to see, you know, how, how, how they've made progress. And a lot of times they would have come back saying, 
oh, you know, I, I did X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I'm really pissed off about all this and this. And it's like, okay, well, how do, how do you compare to, to it before? It's like, oh, well, all of these dimensions were improved except the emotion. Right. Yeah. And, and to say that emotion needs to be improved, just emotion as a word is, is definitely way over some simplified. It's, I like the way you put it volatility, like the roller coaster of spikes and uh, how long it lingers in your mind, how long it takes you to recover. Uh, that's, that is good. Um, kind of like maybe even a bounce back stat of, I, I had a bogey. What did you do on the whole following a bogey or let's break down. What did you do following a really bad shot? Kind of like giving externalizing the emotions and saying here, here they all are. Now let's look at them. Um, that's good. I, that's, that's kind of a selfish question for me is how do I help my players know that we're improving mentally? Um, that's really yeah, good. I, mean, I think that, that, that like the, the bounce back stat is really good. So, so again, we could do like the A, B or C in that spot, right? So right. how quickly, how quickly are you able to get back to B that that's usually that, that's the first reset. One of the problems that I think a lot of players have is like, they want to go from C to A, you know, think about it like a ladder, right? Mm-hmm. You do have to climb your way back in. Um, and frankly, if we're fl- looking at the flip side, like how frequently are you in the zone and how much can you recover when you've fallen out? That's often one of the hardest things to do. But one of the reasons what players have such a difficult time getting back into the zone after they've fallen out is because they want to instantly be back there. It doesn't work that way. The first thing is to stabilize yourself back at B game. And once you do that and you have a, a method to just kind of slowly work your mind back in, it's just you just kind of naturally climb back in because you're you are so close. Mm. You know, but if you expect to get back there, you ain't gonna get back there. Mm. Right. Yeah. Having good expectations too for that is is important. Okay. So third question. Um, have you seen certain psychological traits that top players in poker and golf and now trading have in common? I mean, it goes back to the earlier point about um, like identifying and recognizing weaknesses. I think the biggest one you look at top players is they are just ruthless at finding every single weakness and trying to control every single factor that they can, you know, and they're not doing it in a like a desperation kind of way, they do it in a way that they understand that, that all of those weaknesses are things that are going to hold them back. And, and they know that the more factors that they can control, the more easily it is for them to play well. And if they aren't playing well, they can more easily discern where, you know, the kind of the bad luck, good luck factors, you know, into their, their rounds. Cause you know, a, a 69 could easily be a 65 and can easily be, you know, one over based on a few different things that happen, you know, within a given round. So, you know, you have to understand the, 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 the impact of variance and the, it's a lot easier to understand the impact of variance when you have a good sense of, of where your game lies. Um, I mean, I think a, a love of the game is, is a, is a huge criteria, right? It's, it's not just a, like, I want to win to make money. I don't, it's not just, I want to win. It's, I love to hit golf shots. I love to go practice because I love the game and I love getting better and I love competing you know, those are, those are criteria that, you know, the greats all have. It, it doesn't matter what, what industry we're talking about. Right. And that, that love sustains them through the difficulties. It, a difficulty doesn't matter to someone who says it's just an overwhelming love of what they're doing It a little roadblock. It makes roadblocks seem really small when, when what you're trying to reach is so big. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, my, one of my favorite memories is 
uh, high school, you know, middle of the summer, driving up my car to the edge of a, of a green and staying out there till like 1030 at night, just chipping around, putting in the dark with just the, you know, headlights. It was just like that. I, I love to practice. I mean, it's, it's painful, <laughs> the current construction of my life. Cause I can't, and I don't, and, and I don't have a good instructor. So then, you know, practice, it just, so yeah, yeah one of these days, but yeah, it's, it's the practical aspects of life. If you have the ability to, to play and practice and you love it, just give it all you got because right. it's not always going to be there. That's true. That's true. Okay. So, uh, this player has a question from the mental game of poker. She's read, she's read the book, um, before I didn't even recommend it to her. So it wasn't just me this time. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> uh, she says the book talks about tilting. Uh, sometimes I tilt when I compare myself and my results to others and their results. I'd love to know if he has advice for that. So comparison to others does, and, and that causes her to go on tilt on the golf course. What do you have to yeah, say? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that tends to be more in the, like the revenge tilt, jealousy side of things. And, and so there we're talking more a combination of an, a confidence issue with, uh, you know, it being sort of expressed as anger. So the anger really is just like a, uh, like the, like what you see at the surface, but what, what's behind the scenes is some weaknesses and confidence. And that doesn't mean that you're a weak player. It doesn't mean that you're weak mentally or emotionally. It just means that there can be these individual facets or components to what makes up your perception of your own skill, right? That again, confidence is all about your perception of your own skill. That's it. So what are the flaws that are going to blind you from having an accurate perception of your own skill? Sometimes it can be those high expectations, right? So if you're expecting too much of yourself, uh, that can undermine your confidence over time. There's actually like, I'd say one of the big advancements in the mental game of trading is this, this like, a, there's a much bigger section on confidence in general, but there's 10 pages on perfectionism and, and, and high expectations. And I lay out a strategy in very, very clear terms that I have used successfully across industries, even uh, recently with a, with a radiologist who's, who had, you Whoa. know, was like, yeah, like having to deal with, you know, reading cancer scans, hmm. um, and, 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 you know, the, 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 uh, insecurity that she had around, you know, doing that reliably. Um, so my point in saying all that is that high expectations can damage confidence because you're not properly feeding yourself the right recognition. And over time, right, that can create this sort of hole where you then sort of seek confirmation externally to fill that hole, right? Whether that's good scores, whether it's winning tournaments, or whether that's perhaps being better than somebody else. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that there is nothing external that can fit, that can fill that hole. You yourself have to go through this process of identifying your own accomplishments, identifying your own skill set, identifying your own weaknesses, and really kind of validating and confirming, you know, what, where, where you are actually really strong and good, and then kind of recalibrating your expectations to something that's more reasonable. Um, so that's like one example of many of these flaws, an illusion of control, an illusion of learning, right? Things like that can, can create that confidence problem, but that's really what's going to create the, the, um, the, the, the tilt towards other players, because a player who is really strong in, in knowing who they are, what they're capable of doing, uh, strengths, weaknesses, all the other, they don't, they might like worry about their competition, um, in a way that says, ah, okay, you know, she's gotten better in this way. So I need to level up. It becomes more motivating, but when there's a weakness in confidence, then the anger sort of seeks to, uh, kind of compensate for it rather than actually just kind of getting to the heart of it. Yeah. And I could speak for this player. It's, she sees another player that is her same age, uh, in college and 
she's that other player's doing really good and okay, she's doing real good. So I need to do really good. And, and it definitely, it leads to anger, jealousy, not motivation. And in some ways it leads to a little bit of motivation, but it's, it attacks that inner weakness of confidence. I think it's more clear that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can't so, you can't get motivated if you, if you if you recognize that there's you know an ankle weight around you, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're you're not going to just start running knowing that you got that there, right? That so the motivation kind of does get held back. So I think the key is just to to really isolate what that weakness is. Good good advice. Um, okay, so uh, another question: What are good keywords that you can use in self talk while playing golf? And she says slash poker, but we'll talk about golf. <laughs> I don't think she plays poker. I don't know. Um, you obviously don't want to say, God, I suck. Uh, even though you use the word suck, like as a self, uh, analysis, but, um, so instead of saying that type of stuff, what should you say? What are some of the keywords, buzzwords, uh, to incorporate in your mental game? So self-talk words you're saying to yourself. Yeah. I mean, so for me, the self-talk has to be connected to what you're trying to improve upon. Right. So if you automatically, reflexively. And I say that really importantly, if your reflex is to have that, I suck thought, why is that? Why do you think that you suck? Again, we can go back to high expectations. We can go back to just a flaw in a lot of people's sort of thinking that self-criticism is the way to actually motivate you to get you to play better. So maybe the self-talk there is no, like I I got this. I, I know I'm good. Now to have that phrase you know, kind of have an impact, you probably need to have like a bigger paragraph that, that you read before you play that, that kind of articulates all of the ways in which you are a strong player, all the ways in which you have improved in some respects, you might need to actually even think about um, things that you kind of take for granted. Now, you know, if you think back a couple of years to aspects of your game that you were more worried about, let's say maybe it was your bunker play or uh, you know, mid irons, whatever it was and that, that you're just not, even a question anymore. I think sometimes players have too short of a memory when it comes to their own skill set. And so when you can say, oh yeah, like I firmly checked off all of these boxes and it it kind of helps in in a similar way to the, you know, good shots, bad shots we were talking about earlier to, you know, create greater stability so that the things that you are working on don't dominate your perceptions. Like, oh, here's this big laundry list of stuff that I'm really, really good at. And here are the, you know, the handful of things that I'm working on to get better at from now. Right. So that becomes kind of your leverage point. So you read that paragraph before you play, you pull out a sentence or a phrase, you know, and it just kind of reminds you of it in that moment. I think anytime you can take that bigger paragraph in a sense and kind of chunk it down into something bite size, um, you know, that, but for me, like changing the self-talk is all about like what outcome you are trying to produce. And from a mental and emotional standpoint, you know, usually that means the correction of some kind of misperception or, or some kind of flaw. That's, that's a great practical advice. Uh, pre-round, pre-tournament, pre-whatever. Um, that's, that's really good. And it, that's a good exercise to just, let's go and list all the good things we're improving on. That's a phenomenal exercise. Um, and that actually goes when, in, when, it, yeah. when it comes to trust, like being able to kind of trust your intuition at certain points, hmm. it's super important. You have that because we talk about trust, like knowledge of self, knowledge of skill set. you know, becomes like a, a very kind of implicit way that you can leverage yourself into those moments where you're like, man, I really feel like the wind is into me. I really feel like I can, I can, you know, I need to hit three here, you know, to get over whatever, you know, bunker or whatever might be intro. 
you know, but like logically you're saying, no, no, no. Like you should hit four all day here, but you're, but that gut feeling is really strong. You will experience those, the, the number of those instances very frequently. Mm. How do you make that decision to hit the three and to be able to hit it with conviction, right? You need to have a really strong understanding of what your assets are, what your skill set is. So going through that is not just important for, for good self-talk. It's also really important for, you know, some of those key moments in a round where, you know, your intuition kicks up and it's like, all right, well, I have to trust something that doesn't have full logic with it. Why is that coming up? How do I trust it? Well, it's, it's cause you actually know your game well enough to know what you should hit here. Right. That's awesome. Okay. So another one, uh, one of the biggest issues in both poker and golf is planning for variability in results. And we've talked about variance. That's a, a word that has lodged in my mind since I've read mental game of poker. Uh, what is your advice advice on forming a game plan to address variability, which occurs throughout a round while not hurting yourself by being overly conservative, basically like how do you allow for errors in your shot pattern while picking the correct times to be aggressive? And I don't know if you've heard of, um, decade golf and Scott Fawcett. Um, I, he said, I basically want Jared to talk about decade. Uh, so kind of when, how do you pick times to be aggressive and conservative, uh, to, to deal with variability? I mean, I think this is like a player to player kind of thing. Like some players like the stats and they want to know like percentages where, you know, in a sense, kind of the shot link kind of stuff, which I think is probably what we're kind of heading here in terms of shot dispersion and percentage of, you know, degree of error from, you know, hundred yards and whatnot. Um, so uh, if you are the kind of player that likes to dig into those stats and understand kind of where, where your, um, where your metrics lie, you know, you can, you're, you're basically kind of making percentage-based decisions frequently. And I, I think it's a really important thing for players to be doing that in general, right? Even if you're a 20 handicap player to have a sense as to what your dispersion is so you have a, an idea of from hundred yards, how frequently you're, you're going to actually miss a green, you know, even to a, a, a pin that's in the center of the green. Mm. Um, so I, the reason is because when you are consistently kind of making the right decision, one that both fits your personality and also, you know, your skill set at that point in time, you do strengthen your golf swing, right? You are honing, you know, that style of shot. I, I think, invariably players tend to be too aggressive relative to their skill set. They put too much pressure on their swing to reliably hold up. And that, that actually kind of damages their ability to progressively improve. So, you know, one of the really important kind of, I think components of that is, is being able to recognize kind of where your game is and how it does kind of ebb and flow, you know, as rounds go on, you know, so for me, right. So I, I play 15 times a year. I know that the first six holes roughly are my chance to just like, get a feel for where my game is. Right. And so in that time period, I am making my most conservative decisions, both off the tee, uh, sometimes even around the greens. And then once I have a sense of a decent sample, both, you know, right now and also kind of where my body's at, then I will be able to start uh, selectively being more aggressive. And sometimes that happens naturally as I intuitively start to, you know, be able to feel like, all right, my wedges are dialed in enough where I can go at this flag. You know, but I think for a lot of players, and I, I can say this emphatically for me, my um, focus when I'm hitting shots is only on my target now. I have firmly removed any negative connection I have to a bunker, to a hazard, to OB, because I know that if I go through my process and hit it there, 
I mean, it's just, it's just the variance that exists within me and I can accept that and move on and it is what it is. Right. And so that, that frees me up to go after the shots that I want. So my point in saying that is that, um, having that, that, uh, the ability to sort of not fear trouble makes it a heck of a lot easier to be able to be more aggressive in spots where it, it both, I feel like I've got it, you know, where my game's at and, and, you know, uh, you know, have it again, I'm not taking stupid shots, right. There's a degree of aggressiveness that comes in, but you know, it, it kind of all has to do with understanding your game, understanding of, of, uh, how, uh, attracted or not attracted you are to trouble and how much that's going to influence you. Um, you know, I, I think those are probably the, the bigger, bigger points there. Yeah. And that goes back to the, the self-assessment of your game, the paragraph you write bef- that you read before every round, you know, your skill set. you know, this is my average shot dispersion, depending on how statistically prone you are. Um, so I, a big thing for you sounds like self knowledge of your skill set, perception of your skill set. That's confidence. So, um, for everyone listening in order to make a shot target choice, it's about knowing your own ability. Um, sounds like that's what it comes down to. And I mean, if you know, I can't get it, I can't keep an eight iron within 30 feet left or right, then I don't need to be hitting it out of flag that's tucked against the fringe. So, um, it's self-knowledge is, is a big factor. Um, well, one more question, and you kind of touched on this earlier. What percent of golf is physical and what percent is mental? And I know you said competitive golf is 90, 10, mental. Um, is there is there kind of one – it's a dumb question, but I like to I like the answers that people give. Um, is there kind of one way you can say it's all it's this mental, this physical? Uh, no, I, I think because it depends on, on you know, kind of where you are in your evolution. If you're a beginning player, the mental component is going to come more from your personal life, right? You're going to be more influenced by either prior performance environments and how you've kind of approached them or just your own kind of personality and emotional issues that you experience, you experience outside of. So, you know, the impact of, of uh, you know, for, for a beginner, it's, it's mostly technical, right? And as we said before. You know, and that can kind of flip as you look at, you know, tournament players and, and really good players. Uh, you know, there are going to be times where, you know, the technical aspects of the game are going to kind of peak in terms of importance. The mental components are going to peak. You know, there's going to be, uh, you know, in terms of uh, shot selection, we're talking about shot link data and, 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 and just kind of raw, you know, statistics, like understanding kind of variance and volatility. Um, so if I were to like kind of put metrics on it, I would say that on average, you know, the game for most people is between 60 and 80% technical. And we're going across the board from, you know, just physical components too, in terms of your fitness and your ability to actually swing the golf club in the ways that you intend, um, your conditioning and your ability to maintain that over a long period of time, including, you know, four round, uh, tournaments, um, you know, that's all kind of in one bucket. And then we're talking, you know, anywhere between 10, 15, 20% mental, um, 30% mental at, t- at certain times, you know, I said earlier, okay, 90% mental when we're talking about that, that, that's a very, that we're talking about like in tournament rounds, right. right. That's where that shows up. But, you know, on average, I think, you know, the mentality is, is in that range, you know, and then there's the five to 10% of variance that is out of our control. And so then, yeah, okay. The mentality is more important for how you kind of understand and comprehend that. But, you know, again, some of that mentality comes from having really good knowledge of what your statistics are. So that you can kind of, uh, you know, kind of play that variance because sometimes the variance comes from you. Sometimes the variance comes from the golf course. Yeah. 
Well said. So when you know, you know so much about golf and mental game, when is the mental game of golf coming? The book? It's a good question, man. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so so I, I've thought about it. I mean, there's just, there are so many uh, other golf psychology books that are out there. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I, some of them are good, right? All have, you know, some value to add. Um, I think when I've, um, I'd say had more time and had more, you know, of my PGA tour clients mention me and breakthrough, you know, that I can have, I, I just, I think it's more sure. of a marketing problem sure. than it is a, a question of content. Um, you know, there's nothing more that I want to do than, um, to put golfers in their place, uh, not for my own personal vendetta, but just because I love the game. And it, like when I go to a driving range or I go to play, I just have, it's like, um, needles in my brain, mm. just like hearing golfers talk. And so it's, it's, you know, in some respects I want, you know, to bring the game that I love to a better place and, and just make it more enjoyable for me so that I'm yeah. <laughs> not being confounded by just the lunacy that exists that, you know, uh, you know, guys talking about leaving the driving range so that it can, you know, save their shots. <laughs> I know it's said in tongue in cheek, but, but they're serious. I mean, they yeah, are, yeah. they are serious. Sure. This, so anyway, yeah. uh, it's, it's probably a little ways off. Um, I've got a mass market book, um, you know, kind of in the works, uh, based okay. off of the concept of inchworm. So, you nice. know, maybe after that comes out and maybe the timing will work well with a couple of my guys breaking through. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So where could, what do you want people to uh, know about you find buy from you find how can they find you give a little little bit of that yeah so uh i'm not taking new clients right now um but you know if you want to get you know info on me uh jaredtendler.com you know i mentioned uh, the worksheets that are there you can create profiles uh to kind of start mapping you know your anger your fear confidence issues etc which again is always kind of the most important thing so there's lots of worksheets on the site you know i keep a blog you know a lot of the stuff is you know, in the near term, going to be about trading since that's that book just came out. Um, but again, all the concepts apply equally as as we've kind of already talked about. Um, you know, the poker books are out, and I think if anybody's you know kind of already got them and they've liked them, um, the trading book. You know, if you want to go through it, like what it does is like lay out my system in 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 more clear terms. You'll you'll recognize a lot of the you know the concepts there, but everything is sort of more systematized. There's 80% more content, so every particular individual problem now has been more thoroughly described and expressed. Um, you know, the tilt chapter in, in the poker book is the really long one. And then subsequent chapters kind of, um, you know, are kind of much smaller in this book, the fear and the anger and confidence and discipline chapters are all very beefy. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of content. And I think the biggest upgrade um, of something that's not, that wasn't there before um, is all about kind of the client process components and like how you actually both uh, recognize progress um, identify sticking points. Like what are the most common problems that players go through when they're trying to improve? Um, that, that stuff is kind of all in there and it's, it is somewhat kind of industry agnostic. Like it's, it's obviously talked about in a trading sense, but it applies everywhere in terms of the, the common pitfalls that the players experience. So, um, the audio book is not out yet. It will be out soon, but, um, you know, it should be out, you know, everywhere books are sold. So cool. Yeah. So but I will say, you know, you can also yeah. sign up for my, my newsletter. I'm going to, you know, be kind of doing a lot more content nice. there. Um, I may start to do like workshops and, and, and kind of webinars. Um, mm -hmm. and that might be kind of across industries and not just kind of trading or poker specific. So, um, there may be some opportunities for people to do stuff there as well. Yeah. And I'll encourage anyone listening or watching the, the industry agnostic is a great way to put it because I, 
I'm a golfer. I've always been a golfer and now I coach golfers yet. I learned so much from a poker book. So I'm sure the trading is the same way, if not better now, because you've learned how to make yeah, it more 10, industry. 10 years of content too. That too. So yeah. uh, Jared, thank you so much for doing this. I'll let you go. Um, this has been a pleasure. Awesome, Josh. Thanks for having me, Ben. All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jared. He's so smart. He's, um, I mean, I learned things just in the approximate hour of that I talked to him. Um, it's just, uh, I just questioned myself as a coach and as a golfer. And it's just, I don't know. He's just got such a good perspective on things and he's super smart and, and has an awesome background in, in now coaching and, you know, clinical psych and whatever, a, you know, masters in psych, I believe he said. So, uh, just an awesome, awesome guy with such good knowledge. So I hope you learned something again, head over to the Facebook group, uh, and drop what you learned, just one thing that you learned from today's episode with Jared. Uh, maybe it was about how to handle emotions. Maybe it was about uh, how to how to come back from difficult situations. Whatever it was, go drop what you learned over in the Mental Golf Show Facebook group. Go search for it uh, in Facebook, or I'll have the link in the show notes. Either way, head over there. I can't wait to see you over there, and I can't wait to see you in the next episode. All right, catch you later.